You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. start off with First uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. And if you have your Bibles there at home, if not, it's also going to show up on the screen for you. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. It says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The three primary problem areas that pertain to holiness for men is, first of all, appetite. Holy hands. This is what the scripture is referring to. Holy hands. Anger, which is wrath. And thirdly, doubting, which is apathy. Appetite is something that has troubled men since Adam took the first bite from the forbidden fruit. And it's still the thing that plagues us today. Unfortunately, our appetite can be misguided by the things of this world. And instead of being full of Instead of being full of God's Spirit, we can fill up on junk so that our appetite is spoiled. We no longer feel like engaging in worship, lifting up our hands in praise, singing songs that bring glory to God, coming to church, reading our Bibles. All those things seem like a chore. It seems dull and boring because we've allowed ourselves to be filled with the junk food that this world offers. And not in a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense. God has required of us two things, first of all, separation from the world and dedication to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, uh, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. By definition, holiness involves both the inner man by experience and the outer man by evidence. People say, isn't it enough just to act like the church on church days and live like however I want throughout the week? If your outer man isn't showing the evidence of leading a godly lifestyle every single day, then there's a problem with the inner man. Long before people outwardly show contempt for obeying God's commands, there has been a seed of bitterness that's been planted inwardly, giving way to carnality. And if you walk after the flesh, like the Bible says, you will exhibit the ways of the flesh. And if you walk after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... And so we need to address our flesh on a daily basis, take stock of what we are ingesting, and align ourselves with the Almighty God. But why do we do this? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, What know you not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. You were God's. And David, he wrote that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He doesn't want us grazing on things that are on the wrong side of the fence. 
you can always tell if someone's inner man has been feeding on the wrong things because your attitude will always show what your appetite has been feasting on. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, it tells us a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance, for of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaketh. If you're speaking good things, then you're putting in good things. But if pastor asks you to submit to something, and you get a bad attitude about it and start bad-mouthing the pastor and talking to other people about how you disagree, you've been taking in the wrong things. But if pastor asks you to do something your flesh doesn't want to do, and you do it anyways with a good spirit, that shows that your appetite is in the right place. Holiness includes attitudes and thoughts, particularly in men. So that's why I'm addressing the men today. See, God knows us so well. Of course he does. He's our creator. He formed us in our mother's womb, and he speaks to us through his word to help keep us on the right path. It's so easy to get off, to get sidetracked, to lose focus. But the Lord desires us to lead a holy life, not just for ourselves, but for those who follow us. And just like apostolic women are called to stand out in their appearance to show that they belong to God, apostolic men are called to stand out by their actions. Men, God will help us be like He desires us to be, but He will not force us. We must make a choice to live by God's standards. When men come before God and worship, they are admonished by the Word of God to approach Him with holy hands. And we cannot approach God with holy hands unless we first have a holy heart. But ever since Adam's failure, men have been plagued with out-of-control appetites or lusts, in other words, within their own bodies that war against holiness. Paul warned us of this ongoing battle within the heart of man in Romans chapter 7, verse 19. He said, I want to do what is good. Believe me, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Appetites are God-given and are not wrong in themselves. The appetite for food, for example, is it's natural and it's necessary. You need food to live as a human being. But an unrestrained appetite in this area will lead to all kinds of health problems. God will not remove our appetites, but He does expect us to control them. And he gives us so many different ways that we can do this through the Bible. For example, he wants us to look away when we are going down the hallway of the mall and there is inappropriate images pasted to the window of a, of a store. He wants us to be men and redirect conversations that are ungodly. He wants us to guard ourselves and our homes. He wants us not to allow inappropriate movies, songs that you can't worship God to, magazines that encourage ungodly lifestyles, pornography, and so on, into our lives. If you can't worship God to the songs that you're listening to and give God praise and lift up your hands, you shouldn't be listening to it. If you can't, this is the way that my pastor described it as, I remember a lesson that he did growing up, Brother Wicket, he always said, if you can't watch that movie or listen to that song with your pastor sitting in the room with you, you shouldn't be watching it or listening to it. The world will continue to promote things that appeal to our carnality. 
It's their agenda because it brings them money. But we have to realize tonight that it's the devil's agenda because it tears people away from God. His ultimate agenda is to walk about seeking whom he may devour. We abstain from drinking anything with alcohol because the Bible teaches it. We abstain from fornication of any kind because that's what the Bible teaches. But it teaches us these things for a reason. There will always be a cost to pay for just one drink, just one smoke, just one slip up, just one more look at that website. Our flesh seeks gratification, but the long-term effects of a short-term decision can stay with you for a lifetime. Yes, God does have mercy, immeasurable mercy. Yes, God does give second, fourth, 68th chances to find forgiveness, but there are consequences that will stunt your spiritual growth if you feed on the wrong things. Within man, God has placed a drive to conquer. If it's controlled, it's a beautiful thing. It can result in things like advances in careers, for example. But uncontrolled, it can turn a man into a workaholic, and he will end up sacrificing his family and his spiritual life because he finds more fulfillment in his career. Within man, God has placed a drive to compete. If it's controlled, it can be used to develop talents and personal skills, but if it's uncontrolled, the drive to compete can make you angry and jealous and revengeful against anyone you perceive as getting further ahead than you. Within man, God has placed a drive to control. If it's controlled, it can help us as men to take charge of situations and lead in a way that's beneficial to others. But if it's uncontrolled, it will manipulate people and situations for the purpose of selfish gain. Do you see what I'm talking about? Within man, God has placed a sex drive. If it's controlled, then the man will become physically attracted to a woman, leading to marriage and faithfulness only to her. But if it's uncontrolled, it will produce unhealthy sexual desires. The Bible has a lot to say about our appetites, especially those that get out of control. It talks so much about this because it's a warning for us to stay away from things that would be negative. An out-of-control appetite or poor self-control, in other words, will lead to destroying your spiritual life. What used to excite you about going to church will turn into a chore. What used to make you sit on the edge of your seats underneath the conviction of the Holy Ghost will make you stay in your pews and fold your arms during the altar call. All because of a spoiled appetite. You ever... You ever come into the kitchen and your wife or maybe your mom has made some freshly baked cookies and she tells you to stay out of them until after the meal? You eat the meal first and then you can reward yourself from finishing your meal by having one of those treats. Well, there are some things that the Bible tells us and warns us about to stay away from. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, here's a reason. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I love this verse. He's talking to the church. This letter that he has written is to the church, and he calls us strangers and pilgrims. Look at it from the New Living Translation. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. 
We are temporary residents of this world. We can't forget that. We joke in the office that the men in our ministry team have become the mission point movers because we've moved a number of individuals. But soon Christ will return and move us to our heavenly home. We are foreigners living here. Don't get comfortable. The world's agenda is to get everyone comfortable with its lifestyles. They put their agenda into media, into movies, into music, because they are trying to make it the norm. They're trying to make it so that you can accept the fact that this is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. This is how the world is now. And if it can get put in front of us long enough, we will get used to it. At least that is what their agenda is. We used to have a, a German shepherd growing up. It was on a leash outside, and it would pace back and forth. And it would get so accustomed to doing this that one day when we let him off the leash, he kept going back and forth in the same path that he had worn down in the ground. This is how we are if we don't have the kind of self-control that it takes to remain as foreigners. We won't recognize freedom when it comes to us. Well, I don't want to stand out. That's too bad, because that's how God has designed you, to stand out. There's an old saying that says, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If you look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, let's face facts. God's not coming back for the church that's playing camouflage with the world. He's coming back for his church that is set apart, that is holy, that desires him, that has kept themselves undefiled, from filth. There's only one way to deal with lust. It must be subdued with something more powerful. It's only as we yield to God that we will be able to resist lust. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 13, it says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were as dead but now you have new life. Thank the Lord. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. There once was a time when you were a dead man walking in your sins, but God has given you new life. Use that new life to do what is right for the glory of God. Sometimes men make the mistake of thinking that they can handle the wrong things that, are that they are tempted to look at and talk about or think about. They think, oh, this will never affect me. It will never show up in my actions. But what they don't realize is that the process has already begun. And if it goes on too far, they will be powerless to stop it in and of themselves. What will start as thoughts will turn into actions. James chapter 1, verse, 15, verse 14 to 15, it says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. My wife's going to come in just a little bit here as I transition over to her in my final statements. Lust is a process that always ends in death. Men, we cannot have holy hands without a holy heart. Just as women are to take the lead in matters of external holiness, men must take the lead in matters of internal holiness. 
It's time for men to assume their rightful place of leadership in prayer, in worship, in witnessing, and in living for God. Just as it is God's will for Christian women to stand out in matters of modesty, it is God's will for Christian men to stand out in the ways of worship. Men, your wife shouldn't be the only one at the altar when it comes time for altar call. You need to be the one leading your house in worship. You should be the one saying, let's pray about this when it comes to decisions that need to be made in the home. Our men should be distinct in their actions and principles. It's what sets us apart. Men, we, if you have not been holy before God as you should have been, if you have been lost and losing your struggle with appetite, it's time to stand up and stand out for the Lord. God can forgive. God can heal. God can deliver. We need an appetite for the things of God more than we have ever needed it before. And my wife's going to come at this time and teach on a biblical perspective of holiness as it pertains to women. Holiness is not a topic that people generally like to talk about. Our flesh doesn't necessarily like to be inconvenienced. However, if God places great importance on it, then it should also be important to us. For the unbeliever, this topic won't make a whole lot of sense. But for those who are seeking to please the Lord, it's important for us to teach the Word of God and what it says about holiness. Tonight, we will be looking at what we would call um, standards or lifestyle convictions. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy means totally and completely, your spirit, soul, and body. It's a process. It doesn't happen immediately, but it's something that happens over a period of time. It's the journey of the maturing process that happens in a Christian's walk with Christ. And that's why expectations differ from that of a mature Christian and that of a new believer. You wouldn't expect your newborn baby to chew down a whole hamburger without first developing their teeth. And I have a whole lot of information um, after hours and hours of study compacted, compacted into a very short period of time. So just hang in with me. It will all make sense in the end. Uh, so let's take a dive into holiness and later on we will get down to how it pertains to women and our appearance. But holiness is a requirement for Christians. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16 says, But as he which has called you is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12 and 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now we can look at this two ways. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without no man shall see the Lord, meaning without it we cannot enter into heaven, we will not see the Lord without holiness, or without holiness no man shall see the Lord in you. Without holiness, how will they see God in us? Holiness in its earliest meaning means to withdraw, separate, and sanctify. By definition, you cannot be holy without being separated from something. And that's why we must be separated from sin. 
You cannot be sanctified without being separated from something, and that's why we withdraw from the world and its influences. Don't apologize for trying to live a holy life. We are commanded to be holy. Godesh, which is the Hebrew word for holy, literally means withdrawn from the world. Now, holiness takes place on three different levels, and I, I have to set the scene so that the rest of it will all make sense, so just bear with us. The process happens through justification, sanctification, and glorification. When we are first saved, we go through something that is called justification, and that's when you go through the process of being baptized, receiving the Holy Ghost, and being justified or being made right before God, where we choose to walk away from sin, become born-again believers, and we are saved only by His grace. The next step is sanctification. This is where we are learning to be led by the Spirit, constantly making the effort to be separate from the world and striving towards holiness. This is the growth process of, which, um, of what we are in right now. We're all in the sanctification area. The struggle is real, but we are all in this together. And then the final step is glorification. And that's when the trumpet sounds, the Lord takes us home with him, the struggle is over. Somebody say hallelujah. And we are free from these mortal bodies, and we live in a glorified state in heaven with him. There are salvation issues, and there are maturing issues. As we mature, God has different expectations of us. There's a lot of things in Scripture that once we get through the justification process and enter the maturing stage, our number one duty becomes obedience to God's word. That's our number one duty, obeying his word. Your convictions don't save you. It's only by the grace of God that we are saved. But if I rebel against the teachings in these areas, then that's rebellion. And rebellion is always a salvation issue. In the end, I don't look like, dress like, or act like the way I do to be saved. But I do it because I am saved. 1 Peter 1 and 15 which we read, but as he, uh, as he which has called you is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. In the King James, conversation actually means lifestyle. So in all manner of lifestyle, be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Corinthians 6.19, which my husband spoke on, what? Know ye not that that's how Paul is saying it. What? Know ye not that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? You have been purchased and bought with a price. You belong to him. We are wearing his name, which means we have an image to uphold, and that is not our own. Holiness must involve separation from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 to 18, and 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, or perfecting holiness in reverence and respect and honor to God. We have a part to play. We have to come out and be separate so that God will receive us. And number three, God demands an external witness of our internal holiness. Romans 12, 1-2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know, it would be much easier to be a dead sacrifice because if you're dead, you just lay there and you really don't have a choice in the matter. But to be a living sacrifice takes great effort. As a living sacrifice, you make the decision day by day to stay on the altar of God. You can get up, you can walk away, but you make the choice to stay there as a living sacrifice. And verse 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And of course, if any of my cherished girls are listening, Matthew 5 and 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's a lot of focus placed on internal holiness. However, modern spirit-filled Christians often pride themselves on being holy on the inside while being unaffected on the outside. But this is incomplete. We must have holiness both inside and outside. Our purpose in this series is to deal with practical holiness, and that's how our internal holiness affects our external lifestyle. And this evening, as it's been said, my main topic will be on women's apparel. And we're going to take an in-depth look at the Word of God and what it has to say about it and the standards that he has set for our lives. Now, you might ask, many have before. I may have been one of them in my younger days. Why are there so many external standards, and why do they seem to affect women more than men? I'm glad you asked, because we're going to take a look at it. The reason there seems to be more rules for women is that God created men and women very differently, even if that's not a politically correct thing to say these days. The fact is, we are totally different creatures. Men are stimulated by sight, and that's why Jesus said, whoever so looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart, according to Matthew 5.28. A man is normally attracted to a woman physically before he is attracted to her emotionally. Women, on the other hand, are stimulated by touch, either a physical touch or an emotional touch. And that's why Paul gives a totally different command concerning women. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, according to 1 Corinthians 7 and 1. So while a woman is commanded to appear a certain way so that the man is not stimulated, the man is also commanded to act a certain way so that the woman is not stimulated. And that's why there are more external standards for women. The additional rules, if you will, for appearance are for the lady's own protection from lust from men. In actuality, standards of action that the men have to follow through with are, act, are harder to keep than standards of appearance. In 1 Timothy 2 and 8, just before he mentions the external standards for godly women, Paul mentions the three strict requirements for godly men, which we touched on, lift up holy hands, a body free from sin, worship without wrath, a spirit free from anger, and worship without doubting, a mind free from doubt. There are principles of modesty and there are principles of distinction. Um, obviously, men and women are very different, uh, totally different creatures. We don't respond the same way in a lot of situations. And God does not want that blurred in any way. He created us male and female. In 1 Timothy 2, and 2 8 to 10, it says, I will therefore men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shame 
facedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Deuteronomy 22 and 5, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now historically, men and women both wore robes, but the two had significant distinctions in how they wore their clothing. This was accomplished by um, the styles and markings, lengths and cuts and trims in those robes. They had specific differences since one's gender could be casual, casually observed from a distance according to Genesis 24:65. However, the most important disti gender distinction was not simply in what they wore, but how they wore it. There were male and female ways of utilizing their clothing. The priests wore what, we, what was considered breeches under their robes in Bible times. Um, in every case that the scripture spoke of this particular type of garment, it was always worn by a man. Breeches were to be worn under the robe, especially when the priests were carrying out their duties up on the altar. For example, it could have been a windy day, and to be frank, nobody needed to see any of that business up in there. So he had to be covered properly. Kind of like when you're sitting in the pew and we're up here on the platform, we're at a higher level, hence the importance for proper length of clothing. That's a plug-in for my department. Women did not wear crotched garments in Bible times because this type of attire belonged to men. Crotched garments were to be worn during masculine roles and responsibilities. Men in the Bible were also permitted to what they called was girding up the loins, giving their robes a trouser-like effect. In the scripture, the Lord would tell the men to gird up their loin when he was calling on them for masculine postures of accountability. Some quick examples are Job 38.3, gird up thy loins now like a man, for I will demand thee an answer. Job 40 and 7, gird up thy loins now like a man, I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Uh, speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1 and 17, thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. The male responsibility was dependent on his state of apparel. Pants and girding of the loin was for masculine authority. It was about distinction between the male and female role. So let's just quickly rewind to the beginning of time when God set standards for what he deemed as what we would call modesty. Uh, we can trace the concept of apparel all the way through the scriptures. Mankind's first clothing, at first Adam and Eve were clothed in innocence, but after sin came, their nakedness became a shame and danger to them. Their nakedness did not result from removing physical garments because they had never worn any to begin with. Instead, they became aware of their nakedness because of sin. And now they were separated from God's glory, which had originally been their covering. Genesis 2.25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So after the first sin comes in, Genesis 3 and 7, and the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Genesis 3.10, and he said, Adam speaking, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
In Genesis 3 and 21, God, unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and, notice it says, clothed them. So they tried to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together to make an apron. And the Hebrew word hagora means girdle, belt, loincloth, apron, or loin covering. This garment um, covered the hip and loin region and was man's idea of modest apparel. But we see in verse 10 that Adam and Eve still knew they were naked in God's sight, even though they were wearing an apron. Since their covering was not acceptable to God, he used animal skins to make them a coat. The Hebrew word kutune means a tunic with sleeves coming down to the knee and sometimes to the ankle. This is a garment with sleeves covering the shoulders to at least the knee and is God's idea of modest apparel. And this dates all the way back to Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman. And since God doesn't change, the principles of modesty does not change either. There are other instances in scripture where a person is partially clothed but uncovered, and in these cases, they expose themselves to moral shame. Uh, notice in the following references, either uh, the uncovered torso, so anything that a bathing suit would cover, or the thigh, which is the upper leg, brings shame, according to God. Quickly, Genesis 3.10, and he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, because he was only covered with an apron, and I hid myself. Exodus, Exodus 20 and 26 and do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness, speaking about the thigh. Exodus 28 and 42, and thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loin even unto the thigh. So from the waist to the knee, they shall reach. Isaiah 47, two to three, take the milestones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, which is the upper leg, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. So God considers this to be nakedness, anything above the knee and below the neck. Um, nakedness was established and covered by the beginning from God to defeat the temptation that it created. Nakedness is moral shame. And that is covered from Genesis 3 and 7 all the way through to Revelation 16 and 15. So clearly our nakedness must be covered. And this principle is not cultural. Anyone can see that by looking outside your window in this day and age. But it's biblical. And that's what counts. When Paul addresses women's clothing in 1 Timothy 2 and 8 verses uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 10, he said that a woman's clothing must be of modest apparel. Now, the word modest comes from the Greek word kosmios, which means well-ordered, becoming, dignified. It describes one whose inner self-discipline and humble attitude is reflected outwardly in appropriate attire. And the word apparel comes from the Greek word katastole, which means a long flowing garment. This word reflects directly on a style of garment the Greeks called katastola, which was loose-fitting and flowing and covered from the neck to the knees, which was considered to be long. Notice that Paul requires the same type of garment in the New Testament that God required in the Old Testament found in Genesis 3. 
The garment of a woman should therefore cover her thigh and knee. It does not have to be any longer than that. If Paul wanted to specify ankle length, he would have used the Greek word pedora seen in Revelations 1 and 13. So the reason that pants are not considered to be modest apparel for women is because even though they are past the knee so long, they are not a flowing garment. And they also gird up the loins, which separates the legs above the knee, and according to scripture, makes them only appropriate for a man to wear. A tight garment of any type is also not modest because it's not a flowing garment. If it's too short, which is anything above the knee, is too short, it is not modest because it shows the thigh, which the Lord considers to be nakedness and shame. So now that we have all the technical facts, the biblical facts set aside and looked at, let's pause for a moment so that I can say this. And everything I say, I say in love. And it's not anything that God hasn't had to deal with me on personally as well. Remember, it's a journey. So what we do and how we live our lives, the way we dress is not some sort of rite of passage to say that you belong to Mission Point or even the United Pentecostal Church International. Our goal is not to please man, but to please God. Everything being taught this evening is scripture. It's not personal opinion. It's God's word and instruction given to us. And only by God's grace are we even able to live holy lives to the best of our ability. And whether you choose to follow these guidelines is ultimately your decision. God has given each person the power of free will and of choice. And in the end, you have to work out your own salvation with the Lord. That's not something I can do for you or the Carters can do for you. That's something that you have to pray about and speak to the Lord about. That being said, my feelings as a human or my personal opinion does not change his sovereign word. One can say, well, I'm not convicted about such things. And my only question to that statement is, have you fasted and prayed about it? Have you studied the word of God and asked him to search your heart? Have you asked him for revelation? What it boils down to in the end is our will, what I want to do. If in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, then God's opinion has never and will not change. It's the word of God. Lack of conviction does not excuse us to disobey God's laws. Submission and obedience is the driving force for what we do. And submission is not always when I agree. Submission is when I don't agree and I do it anyways, as we've already touched base on. But the reward of this obedience and freedom from, and freedom is being free from spiritual bondage of sin, resulting in God's favor in our lives. And that is always well worth the effort in obeying his word. To be restored with your creator, because sin separates us from the glory of God, but to be restored with him is the best place that we could ever be. I've heard it asked, and you're probably asking this evening, um, is it a heaven or hell issue? Well, this is both a yes and no answer. To the new believer or to someone who has never been told of God's law, no, it's not a heaven or hell issue because they are still unaware. But we are responsible for what we've been taught. But for the mature Christian, 
the Bible says this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. My goal is to please the Lord. 100% hands down, that's it. Please the Lord. I was created by him, for him, and then purchased by his blood. My whole life, my very existence belongs to him. My way to say thank you to the Lord for his sacrifice and everything he's done for me is to live a life that honors Jesus to the best of my ability. Now, my husband hates, hates pork chops, despises them, can't stand them. So when I'm cooking supper for him, if he wants beef steak, I'm not going to serve him pork because I love him and I want to please him. I like when he's happy. Likewise, because of my love and gratitude that I have for Jesus, I want to do what he likes so I can please him. My children don't always like obeying the guidelines that we have set for them, even though we put them there for their own well-being. Even so, as their parents, we have certain expectations of them to follow our household rules. In the same way, God has set guidelines for us to follow and boundaries to stay within, not because he's being mean to us, like I've been accused by of my children, but because he loves us and he wants what's best for our well-being. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, body, soul, and spirit, your whole self, he wants what's best for you. And if you don't understand all of this yet, if you're a new convert in our church or you just started studying the Bible, we as church leadership strive to set the example for you. We carry a great responsibility, and it's our duty to teach you what the Word of God says. There is an expectation on me, as Sister Robertson, that I'm going to represent holiness and purity and profess godliness here. Now, when I first came to the church at 16 years old, I didn't understand everything right away out of the gate. I had to pray and seek God's face and listen to the convictions I felt. And in time, I made my heart available to him, and God did speak to me about my apparel quite strongly. Um, I don't actually have these in here, but I'll quickly touch base on it. I remember one day waking up, and it's not something that had been taught. I just had a heart to please God. I wanted to do what was right, even if I didn't understand it. When I prayed, I was like, Lord, I just want to please you. That's all I want to do. I don't even know how that is, but I want to please you. And... As a 16-year-old, um, I did not grow up in Pentecost or in full truth. Um, I went to get dressed for church, for school one day, and the clothing that I put on, which contradicts God's word, um, immediately made me feel sick. And I know this is not the case for everybody, but that was God's conviction speaking to me and saying, nudging my heart and saying, you know what, something's not quite right. Maybe you should dig a little deeper. And that led me to speaking to my pastor and pastor's wife, and the rest was history from there. I studied God's word, and I allowed him to work on me, whether that made me uncomfortable or not, or if it was convenient or easy or not. I wanted to please God. What I did understand right away was my responsibility to obedience. And even though, even through studying for this message tonight, and preparing this message, my heart was stirred all over again. I am not exempt from the convictions of the Lord. 
God began to expose things that I personally need to pay closer attention to in my own life and the lives of my children. And when I first heard years ago, pastor preach on 1 Samuel uh, 15 and 22, but Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. And that stuck with me through my whole life. And it has been on repeat in my mind over the years. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Truthfully, it really doesn't matter what I think is good enough. My sacrifice is meaningless if I'm not obeying his word. And here's another rule of thumb. When in doubt, don't. Uh, there was questions as a youth. I would text my pastor's wife and be like, can I, you know, is this wrong? Is is this sin? Is this displeasing to the Lord? I had questions for everything because I was brand new. I had no idea. Um, and the response that they would give me is, if you have to question it, then maybe you shouldn't. So when in doubt, don't. If you're a young person, get that in your mind. Uh, don't overcomplicate things. We're good at that. But if you, if you say you haven't heard the voice of God, then there's a possibility that your perspective is out of balance. This is the word of God. If we are reading it, he is speaking to us. We cannot separate the two. They are one in the same. You don't have to wait for an audible voice. God is speaking to you. If God said it, I choose to believe it and I'll obey it. And the attitude many have today is, how much do I have to do to be saved? And the attitude of a Christian should be, how much can I do to please my Lord? If we live by this mindset, we won't have any issues with holiness. And if you need to lay stuff on the altar, lay it on the altar. The Lord will gladly burn it up. And that's why it's important to have an altar in your life daily. So what's the final authority on how I live? My feelings or the Bible? Human feelings are very misleading. The word of God is our measuring stick, not the culture we live in. He's crying out to his church, come out from among them. He's coming back for a bride, the Bible says, that is without spot or wrinkle. Be holy, for he is holy. There is a cry going out to the church of Mission Point here lately over the last few sessions that we've done. God is calling us to dig in our heels, come out from among them, and be a holy nation for him. If you're a woman, be the most beautiful, godly woman you can be. I just want to quickly show this picture because, come on, don't tell me that you can't do things in a skirt. 1920, look at the women's hockey team USA. We have uh, a woman in modest skirt playing golf. We have ladies playing basketball and ladies playing hockey. You can do things in a skirt. And if you can't do it in a skirt, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Um, okay, I'm meddling. And then you'll hear the argument. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. That's the telltale always. That's... Uh, yes, absolutely. And because man has to look on the outward appearance and cannot see the intent of our heart, then it becomes even more important to be holy on the outside just as we are holy on the inside. Coming to church should be a safe place for all, everybody. Not only do our outward standards protect us as women from lust, 
we have a responsibility as ladies to create an atmosphere where men can lift up holy hands, where they can come into the temple for worship and not have any extra unnecessary distractions because of the way we look. We're also protecting them. I want to be a blessing to my brother in Christ and not a stumbling block. And just remember, when you're getting dressed every day, young ladies especially, um, speaking to you from my heart, who are you getting dressed for? Who are you trying to please and impress? Your number one should be Jesus. Jesus at the center of it all. Men are called to act holy. Women are called to appear holy. However, we should strive, all strive, to do both. Holy on the inside, holy on the outside. If the inside is right with God, the outside will reflect the same. Uh, Isaiah 4 and 1 says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name. Take away our reproach. Now the seven women represent the seven churches in Revelation, taking hold of one man, which is Jesus, and saying, We want to wear what we want to wear, do what we want to do, act the way we want to act. We want your name so you can get rid of our sin, but don't get into my business, Lord. Basically, deal with me on Sunday, but don't mess with me on Monday. But it is his business because you've been blood-bought, blood-washed, and sanctified. He has every right to have expectations of us, mature Christian. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, we learn that blue was a very special color to God's people. It had specific meaning. It stood for holiness and majesty, the holiness and majesty of God, the color blue. Blue immediately reminded the Jewish people of their loyalty to the Lord. And each morning, the Jews would put blue ribbons on the hems of their garments to remind them that they, who they belonged to and to help them obey his commands. It was a constant reminder that God was holy. It's not about style or what mood we are in. It's about pleasing the king, our Lord, and ruler. Is he the ruler in your life? It's about our relationship with him. There is nothing in this life that is more important than obeying God and his commands. You see, our flesh wants what's convenient and what's easy. Standing out isn't always easy, and it's certainly not always convenient, especially if you like to hide in the background. But we are called to stand out. We are called to be a light in darkness. And how can a light be seen if it is hidden? And I'm coming to a close. Um, don't worry, I'll get you out of here by 8.30. Think about it. If we are standing in a large group of people, and you're in need of a doctor, a police officer, or a nurse in the crowd, you would never know who they are or where they're at if they're blending in with everybody else just by looking at them. But stand in the same crowd when, while they're wearing their uniforms, white coats, and scrubs, and immediately you can point out the person that you need. So don't be ashamed of being set apart. You were meant to. When they see you, you are a walking testimony of God's power and love. God is kind and merciful. God is a deliverer to what has held us captive our whole lives. And through the cross, he has redeemed us and set us free. And now he brought us to a place of freedom and liberty as we follow his teachings. He is full of love and patience for us, but he also loves us too much to leave us where we're at. The standards we just studied are reminders to us 
of who we are and why we are here. We serve a holy God. And it's a high honor that God chose us to represent him. We are walking billboards for him. And if we remove the reminders, eventually we will forget God and his ways and what pleases the Lord. In the end, holiness will be what separates the sheep from the goat and the wheat from the tares. Fall in love with Jesus. That's the first step. When you love him, the rest won't seem like rules or fences. It will be an honor to do these things for your king. When we are truly in love with Jesus, there are no sacrifices, only offerings. It will be our gift to him. And God is just as concerned that we remember his commandments today as he was back in the Old Testament. And instead of blue on the fringes of what we wear, we have standards and ethics that are a part of our daily routine. And if you serve God out of obligation, then these things will seem more difficult. But when you serve him out of love, true love for him, it's a joy and a pleasure. It really is an honor to serve the Lord. If obligation is what you operate by, you're missing out on the beauty of holiness. Holiness is his nature. It's who he is. The Bible says that we are his bride. If you're struggling, if you are struggling with this, spend more time with your heavenly groom. Get to know him all over again. Rekindle that love you have for him just like you would in a natural, normal marriage. A marriage takes work. And we're his bride, so we have some work to do. We've got to keep a good relationship with him. And maybe those ribbons, those blue ribbons need a little bit of repairing. It's okay. Get the sewing kit out. Don't beat yourself up. Our God is a God of patience and mercy. And thankfully, they are new and fresh every morning. And that's a promise in his word. And if you haven't already, you can start now. And if you've faltered a little bit over the last while or years, it's okay. You can start again. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.